Hello and welcome to a podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. This podcast was recorded at the Society of Young Publishers Conference in November 2013. This seminar is titled Building a Career in Academic Publishing. The speakers are Sarah Phipps from Wiley, Professor Ian Stevenson from University College London and Martin Woodhead from Woodhead Publishing. The seminar is moderated by Angus Phillips of Oxford Brookes University. Okay everybody, thank you very much for coming along today to the session on academic publishing. Uh, my name is Sarah Hunt and I'm part of the SYP committee. I normally do speaker events um, and just for background I work at Elsevier. Um, so I'm very interested in this because I'm uh, intimately involved with academic publishing. So we've got Sarah Phibbs here from Wiley and we have Ian Stevenson who founded the MA in Publishing um, at City University London. Um, no, UCL. UCL? Yes. And we have Angus Phillips here, um, and you're at, Bro- are you at Brooks as well? That's right. You're at Brooks as well, yeah, okay. Um, and Martin Woodhead, who founded Woodhead Publishing, which was acquired by Elsevier in 2013, I believe. Um, so thank you very much to you all, and I'll hand over to you. We've got until half past two. Yeah, I have the honour of being moderator. I'm not sure these people need moderating, but uh, thank you very much for coming along to uh, this session. And we've settled on an order, which is Sarah's going to speak first, then Martin, and then Ian. So uh, we're going to talk generally about academic publishing, what the trends are, but also the title is Building a Career in this area. So Sarah, would you like to start yeah, us off? Fine. I think I'm, I'm very happy to take questions as we go rather than kind of save them up for the end. Um, so just raise your hand if you've got to, if you want to say anything. So, um, so my topic here is academic publishing career progression in an industry of change. And just to introduce me, I am the Global Publishing Director. I look after our Social Sciences and Humanities programme at Wiley, and I have specific responsibility for our society publishing. That's why we're publishing on behalf of an academic society or organisation, thinking about the kind of products and services we might build for that client. I thought, actually, thinking about publishing, publishing is not really the right word, because in a way we're in a transition, I think, to a different kind of model which is looking at customer based solutions and, and workflows and offering services to meet those needs. So a good example at Wiley would be a, an acquisition we made recently of a company called Deltac who provide whole university solutions of which textbooks may be a part and it was the textbook group that started that acquisition process off. So I think it's a it's a kind of a shift that's happening and publishing is not quite the right word really for where we're going but it's a it's as good a word as we've got as any at the moment. So, Okay, well, I thought I'd start with me. This is my son's picture of me. <laughs> very huge eyebrows. <laughs> I was wondering, not very flattering. Um, but uh, I did an English and psychology degree at Newcastle University and then a little bit of travelling and ended up in London just by happenstance at the British Urban Regeneration Association, kind of quango, actually. Um, it, was, it was a kind of perfect jack-of-all-trades kind of a job. So I did kind of member recruitment sales on the phone, trying to get people to part with thousands of pounds to become members. I took Japanese property developers around Docklands. I made the tea for MPs when they visited. I did faxing and phoning and all kinds of things, until at one point the magazine, the person who'd been running the magazine, uh, left for Marie Claire magazine, much more exciting than British Urban Regeneration Association magazine. So I volunteered and said, oh, I'll, I'll do that. Quite fancied that idea, a bit of writing. And I went to a very weird organisation that you may or may not have heard of, may not even exist now, called the Institute of Publishing in London. And I did a course in copy editing and proofreading, and that made me feel a bit more qualified to actually take on editing a magazine and interviewing people. Uh, but it was great fun. and. Uh, I really enjoyed that role because it was a kind of whole, it was a kind of a job in which you did kind of everything. Um, trouble was, small organisation, cash flow problems, couldn't really afford to pay everybody on the staff, and so there became a point at which that, that wasn't really a kind of tenable job for me to do. Um, so then I got a job at Blackwell, and I can't now remember if we were Blackwell Publishers or Publishing at that point, but we were one or the other. Um, and I started as an editorial assistant, and I went through, I've been there now, 
um, for 20 years. So um, I, this is Blackwell became Blackwell Pu Publishers, went to publishing. We merged uh, with Blackwell Science and now merged with Wiley. And we became Wiley Blackwell and now Wiley. <laughs> Um, so it feels like I've been working for different kinds of companies and different kinds of styles of publishing. Um, but my transition has really been from kind of an editorial assistant to running a list, so running my own list of journals, then through to commissioning, so trying to sign up new publications, so either journals um, uh, or, or, or partnerships with uh, clients. And then that moved on really to kind of more team management department management and um, then now I think the big challenge comes as you kind of go move on in your career to kind of peer management so thinking about working on working with teams of people who are your peers on steering groups how you influence those people as opposed to when you're in charge of a group of people and a lot of project management so I've just run a project looking at how we need to change as an organization to respond to what's going on in the market um, and finally, leadership, and I think that's kind of the point at which you start to look back and you think, oh, I am now in charge, in a way that you hadn't realised earlier on, you're still leading, you're just leading in a, di in a slightly different way, in a, s in a smaller team or whatever. So, uh, so that's kind of my, my short potted history. So I have really just a couple of few simple slides just to show what I think is the kind of transition that publishing's making. So when I started in publishing, and pretty much until about five years ago, this was what was going on. There was kind of production, marketing, editorial, and sales. It was quite simple. There was some kind of offshoring, um, but a lot of it was kind of managed in that kind of simple headline way. And where I think we're moving now is increasingly specialized roles. And this means there's, there's, there's more complexity about the kind of um, the markets that we're managing, and I think that's requiring us to focus our attention. So do something as a full-time job rather than these jack-of-all-trade jack kinds of roles that we've had in the past. So roles here that I think were not in publishing probably five years ago would be things like business analysts. So these are people who are looking at our own publishing workflows and saying, why are there 18 steps in this process rather than five? So these are the kinds of people that are being hired in uh, user experience um, experts, so people who are looking at our customers' workflows and doing the same kinds of things. We've also got market analysts, so people really looking at data, big data sets, and starting to kind of understand patterns of behaviour, so particularly around usage in journals um, and citations in journals and impact in the real world in journals. And then we've got new roles in community engagement, so people looking at, okay, how am I actually interacting with the people I'm trying to sell to or influence? So in the past, for example, we'd go to academic conferences and present a load of journals in print on the shelves, and academics would come and browse through them, and you thought that journals was, were the answer to their problem at that conference. Actually, they didn't really need to look at those journals. They actually wanted to ask you a couple of questions, but we didn't really know that that's what they wanted from us. So we still shipped boxes around the world at huge cost to present them at conferences, and people still browsed through them because they were there. But actually, that wasn't solving for the customer need. So we've had to adapt and think about what it is people want to do when they come and visit us at a conference stand. So there's different kinds of roles evolving, and I think we have to be prepared to think about how we fit into these new evolving roles. So I think the key questions you need to consider um, in your career are things like, do you want to work for a small company and be a more of a jack of all trades? Or do you want to work in a larger company where there may, may be more opportunities? So. I've had really good examples of this in my team, editorial assistants who've moved into finance, some who've moved into strategy, um, we've had people moving from oh, project management type roles into uh, commissioning editor roles in books, and um, from kind of friends of mine, from kind of primary publishing into solutions at OUP, or um, another friend who's been moving, who moved from ELT marketing into primary marketing, back to ELT sales and now marketing services. 
So there's kind of more opportunities if you're a bigger organisation uh, often to move around uh, in your kind of your specialism. The other thing I thought's worth talking about is the freelance roles because there's a lot of people I know who are working in freelance roles with very successful um, kind of management of work-life balance and I think particularly as you get older and you're trying to juggle family, things like that, that's a really nice way of kind of being involved but not actually finding that that's, you know, you're, you're having to go to an office every day. Or kind of entrepreneurial, are you more entrepreneurial? Do you have a really great idea you want to start up? And how are you going to get that going? I met a really great couple of um, women who started a company called Kudos uh, just recently. And they've, they've set themselves up as marketing consultants, but now they've got this business idea and they're really trying to start, <coughs> start that up to serve the academic community and think about solving problems for journals, actually companies like Wiley. Equally, I think it's important to think beyond publishing because I think there's lots of opportunities for you to gain experience that would be valuable for a publisher outside of what's called traditional publishing, so the kind of traditional Oxfords, Cambridges, etc. Um, and there you may find that working, for example, in universities, understanding impact in the research area, that might help you to get a job in, say, a data market research kind of role within a publisher. So I think there's opportunities to, to trade skills and experience across teams. And we've just hired somebody, for example, who's working at British Gas at the moment in customer service. And that's proven a really great, great transition to a publisher. She had an English degree. She was kind of your classic publisher profile type person. But she's come in a different way. So my final take home is be open to opportunities. So think about what is the next role above your role talk to colleagues and act up. Think about how you might be able to take some of the workload off the people who are above you or sideways to you. So I think be looking for those opportunities. Volunteer. I always love people who say, I've just been thinking there's this great project I'd like to kick off. I say, yes, thank you very much. That's just what I want. Training and development. I think depending on the organisation size, you may find that there's opportunities there for you or there may be less you need to push more. But it's your opportunities as much as the companies to really take advantage of these these kinds of um, courses online and um, I think uh, equally you can ask to if you feel there's common needs across say your type of role that actually they may run trainings for you if you ask for them if you spot if you find the need often bigger companies will find that find the solutions and understand your strengths. Know um, who you work well with, what kinds of people you work well with. And there's lots of ways you can do this. There's kind of tests you can take, personality type tests to look at the kinds of behaviours, the kinds of attitudes that you have. And then you may be able to work out what kinds of part of the publishing cycle, circle, you might like to be in. Um, so if you're more analytical, you're going to be wanting those market analyst type jobs. If you're love talking to people, you'll be wanting to go out there talking to people, commissioning books or journals or whatever. And finally, build your network. I think this is really important and um, this goes beyond kind of the online networking, the kind of LinkedIn kind of networking. This is having a coffee with somebody, really trying to work out who the people are you need to know to get your next role uh, and also to get ideas. Um, and the other thing you might want to think about in terms of your network is actually to ask for somebody to be a mentor to you. So find somebody within the company who could help you to achieve the next step and really really be your champion. Because as companies get reorganised, and while he's just going through a huge reorganisation, you need a champion who's going to say, right, I need to find a role for this person. We're reorganising, they've got these kinds of skills and experience and we'll try and kind of plant them into the right bit of the organisation. So it's really worth your while making sure you have a champion um, in, in, your, in your kind of group, in your, in your bit of the company. So, there you go. Great. That's my little intro. Okay. And I will either pass over to people or take any questions. Is there an immediate quick question to what Sarah said? Or would, yes, about that, yeah. Do you think it's an advantage for people to spend uh, time outside of publishing in other industries? 
Has it helped you stand out uh, amongst all the people who've only ever worked in publishing? I, I think it probably is. And even if it's not even if it's not an advantage, it's about attitude. So I think there's some people that have bring ideas and experience from other industries and that can be just as valuable from reading. You don't necessarily have to experience it, so I think you can you can do a bit of both. You can do it from being in the in the outside world in different industries, or you can do it from from within, but with a kind of active mind, I guess. So. And the mentoring side <coughs> is that sort of an official scheme at Wiley, or is it a? We have a kind yeah. of unofficial, unofficial scheme, scheme. Yeah. Um, but I know there is a there's a there's an official scheme being hatched um, oh, right. in okay. the US. So. Um, is that uh, so, but we also have a scheme called a high potential scheme where you spot people who have potential and you have to have a particular development plan for them. So yeah, right, okay. it's quite a kind of, it's quite a managed process within yeah. the Wiley context. Um, yeah. But if you're not on that scheme, you may feel a bit depressed and <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we can't have yeah. everybody in the high potential scheme. So I think it doesn't mean you can't be developed, it's just that you right. need, so it may mean you need to take more action if you're yeah. not kind of spotted as being one of those kind of one of those people. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Martin, shall we hand mm. over to you? Thanks. I think I'll um, stand up if I may, as I've got a few things to show. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's very nice to be here. Um, uh, my talk is, uh, is really going to be uh, entitled um, Life Since a Misspent Youth. <laughs> Not Life in Publishing Since a Misspent Youth. Um, so this is going to cover, dare I say, nearly six decades got a bit, um, of which uh, I've spent 47 years um, in publishing uh, since 1966. Um, but I want to really focus, I want to whiz through my uh, 47 years in about four and a half minutes, um, and then try to focus on the technological changes that have taken place during that time, um, with some audience participation, hopefully, um, and, and assistant as well. I've got, already got lined up, Rebecca over here, um, and uh, and then we'll uh, we'll see what we make of all that and what sort of you know what conclusions we can come to concerning these changes that have taken place and indeed what will be taking place in the future. So a quick whiz through my um, my career. Um, I was reminded of my misspent youth um, very much uh, recently when I was uh, doing a farewell tour uh, in uh, in the states. Um, as was mentioned earlier, my company, Woodhead Publishing, um, was acquired by Elsevier um, back in August, August the 8th. Uh, I signed on for three months, um, and uh, so I'm now a recently retired person, and I'm enjoying it, no end, um, but only two weeks in so far. Um, and it was <coughs> indeed very appropriate that I should be asked to give a talk to all the staff at uh, um, uh, the... Uh, Elsevier's office in Waltham, um, just outside Boston, because it was Massachusetts that was re responsible for my large chunk of my misspent youth, um, specifically working on a farm um, for the summer of 1965, uh, drinking far too much uh, Colt 45 malt liquor, um, not studying elements of botany, uh, which I took with me, having failed it at uh, Newcastle University. Um, came back, I think took the, this dreaded exam again, failed it again, and was told to go away um, and uh, be sensible and come back in a year's time. That was the plan. Um, my mum was uh, looking through the Daily Telegraph one day, saw this job um, for a temporary van driver uh, for Macmillan, um, and I applied for that, and I got it on the strength of being able to sell ice creams on Brighton Beach. Um, <laughs> So um, after that <coughs> temporary period, Macmillan said to me, well, if you don't want to drive a van anymore, uh, you can, if you wish, um, drive a Vauxhall Victor estate car and become our sales rep for East Anglia. Um, so to be honest, I didn't uh, need to spend much time uh, choosing between that or going back to elements of botany. I think I'd been a lousy soil chemist or whatever I was studying. Um, and I absolutely loved my first few months in publishing, and I've been there ever since. Um, so, um, uh, Macmillan um, got me uh, into um, uh, uh, looking at books of all shapes and sizes, and one of the best things about being a sales rep 
in those days, maybe still is, uh, used to get a free copy of every book. And so, and those you didn't want, you took along to uh, a certain bookshop in Cambridge and got 50% for them as well. Yeah. <laughs> but some I kept, and I brought a few along. And look at this. I've still, it's the most gorgeous book on Dali. And I've got books at home on Rodin and Himalayan art, all kinds of stuff. Do take a look at it later if you want, because it's absolutely gorgeous. And I think that was you know, a relic from uh, my first job. Um, and, um, but after oh, I don't know, two or three years, I thought, well, uh, you know, I'm not going to get much further in Macmillan, because all my paths were blocked. So I, I joined a startup. Um, a firm called Gower Press, just getting going. Uh, they employed me as their sales manager. Um, went down uh, in, the, in the ranks in terms of a company car, but um, it was uh, very much up the ranks in terms of the job. <coughs> Fascinating being uh, in a startup. Um, worked for a guy called Nigel Farrow, who's still very much uh, around. He's the boss of um, Ashgate Publishing. Well, he spends a lot of his time on his, his vineyard these days but a hugely successful publisher, and we've been talking a lot already today about the need to be in contact with your customers. Well, Nigel, in 1969, you know, was, was in touch with customers. He knew the need to be in direct contact, not via bookshops, but direct contact through very sophisticated direct mailing um, systems. And he and I used to sit on a Friday afternoon pouring with our slide rules uh, looking at all our direct mail responses and so on from customers. And um, I presented him with one of these just recently, actually, when he spoke at a dinner. Uh, he'd forgotten about the amount of time he spent using it. Um, so, uh, Gower was great experience for me, um, but uh, it was acquired. Um, it was funded initially partly by um, IPC, which then became Reed International, which then became Reed Elsevier. Um, it was acquired by Xerox in 1972, and um, I'd always had a hankering to start my own business. When I was a little tiny tot, I think, I was wanted initially to run my granddad's farm, but that didn't happen. Um, so I always had this desire, and so I was always looking around. And when I was, was a rep for Macmillan, I very nearly uh, bought a bookshop in Sapphire Walden. Um, but uh, just as well I didn't. <laughs> um, so I saw an opportunity in uh, working whilst working for Gower, um, who published books on business management, things like this. That's a Gower title, um, 1971, Total Distribution Management. One of their bestsellers was this one, Planning and Pricing for Decimalization. <laughs> uh, and I've got the D-Day was 15th of February 1971, did you know that? And that's the book you needed to run your business and get ready for the change from threepenny bits uh, and sixpenny pieces and all the rest of them. Um, anyway, I found an opportunity whilst working for Gower, which I thought just might form you know, the, the basis of getting going on my own, and that was to do sponsored books, because um, we had published some of these books and sold them in bulk to companies. And I thought, well, hey, there's a chance. Um, so I set about it um, and uh, got a bit of funding together. I had no cash whatsoever. You can start businesses without your own cash. You just go back to your building society and you say, can I have a bigger mortgage, please? That was the, that was the only way I could release any capital. Um, but um, through some friends, got a bit of other capital together from people, started with £10,000, I think it was, uh, just enough to last about six months doing sponsored books. And this is my very first book. It was called What Goes On in Business Management. Uh, it spawned a whole series, What Goes On in This, That and the Other, and each one was sponsored. And um, we got National Westminster Bank to sponsor this. They bought 10,000 copies. We dished a copy out to, to schools, one copy to every school with a note saying, if you, want to, if you like the book, you want to buy some more, order them from us. And that went on and on and on, um, all kinds of different topics. Um, um, we did a book, moving on from slide rules, we did some books with Sinclair, the famous Cambridge company, um, Sinclair Book of Management Calculations. And I've, yesterday I discovered, I still got my 
my Sinclair calculator. This is 40 years old. I stuck some batteries in it yesterday, and blow me, it works. <laughs> <laughs> works, oh, so, well, it did yesterday anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and it's got the best constant I've ever, ever come across on a calculator. So isn't that beautiful? A little work of art. This will come be more apparent in a moment when we talk about technolo technological changes. So lots of sponsored books, um, ending up doing lots of food books. Um, we ended up doing almost all of Sainsbury's cookbooks for a 12-year period. Um, tomorrow morning, Radio 4 has a food program on, and there's a big feature about these Sainsbury cookbooks. So I learned yesterday. So do tune in. Um, so that, uh, that company gradually developed um, an academic and professional list as well. Sponsored books were fine, um, but you, you know, you're never quite sure where the next deal is coming from. So we gradually developed um, an academic professional list, particularly in finance and um, investment. Um, some books on social welfare and disability as well. Um, but things like this, um, what has become a real best-selling textbook, Interpreting Company Reports and Accounts, now, now published by Longman, or Pearson rather, I should say, um, and um, other sort of heavyweight things like this on the Euro bond market. Um, so that company did really well in Cambridge, built up bit by bit. Um, and when you build a company up to a certain size, you know, you then get noticed, you know, by the Elzevirs and the Wileys and the Blackwells and the Taylor and Francis of this world. They all come knocking on the door, or more likely they come and offer you a drink at Frankfurt. Um, and uh, you know what they're, what, what, what they're, what, what's on their agenda and you, you, you have a chat and, you know, you keep in touch and so on. Um, and eventually, in 1987, because Woodhead Faulkner um, had quite a number of shareholders, um, and some of them were, they, were no, they knew they were, had a useful little shareholding, but they couldn't do much with it, being a private company, and wanted to release you know, the uh, investment they'd made. And um, so we got several approaches. 1987 ended up uh, appointing a broker who um, handled the sale of the company, got three or four companies all bidding, and Simon and & Schuster came out on top. Um, so it was, a, it was a, a good exit for the shareholders. Um, and um, I thought, yeah, you know, um, this is a good time for me. Um, we can do something with a bit of cash, which we hadn't been able to do before, because you don't get rich um, publishing. Um, and uh, I thought, yeah, I could see myself in a career you know, in Simon and Schuster, or Prentice Hall, really, which is one of their academic imprints, which really we were more involved with. Um, but it didn't really quite work out. Um, I signed <coughs> on for three years, um, and you know, it was just a different of difference in philosophy. And um, really, after two weeks, I think I thought this is not <laughs> going to work out. Uh, anyway, um, I left after eighteen months, and had not found another opportunity to start another company, uh, which is Woodhead Publishing. Started in 1989, uh, acquired a small list uh, of um, books on welding, would you believe? Um, it turned out that um, the Welding Institute was near Cambridge, world-renowned, um, wanted the new CEO, wanted to get shot of the publishing operation, so he was looking around for some mug to take it on. Yeah. And um, approached several publishers. Um, it suited me ideally. I was on the point of leaving Simon and Schuster, and uh, they had premises, they had staff, they had a backlist to speak of, mainly technical reports. And um, this book, little tiny book, was was in the pipeline um, when we took that business over, a guide to designing welds. Um, and so we became world leaders in the area of welding. Um, moving on to big tomes like this, they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and gradually that company uh, developed um, world-leading positions in some of its sectors, like food science. Here's a book which I should certainly be reading, Food for the Aging Population, <laughs> um, where combined with Elsevier, we are now world number one um, in that uh, sector. 
we're world number one in textile technology. Um, it's still saying we, but they. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so on. So you can gradually, in, in niche publishing, you know, build up very, very strong positions, even though you're still, you know, pretty small business. Um, we ended up with 44 people um, in total. So Woodhead Publishing sort of built bit by bit, a few small acquisitions, list acquisitions, um, a lot of organic growth. Uh, we acquired a super local company called Chandos Publishing that Jonathan Davis used to work for until recent, until he joined Elsevier recently. Um, that's been a great success, publishing in uh, library science and information management. Delighted to have one of our authors, <laughs> their <laughs> authors, <laughs> Angus. Um, and um, it was a great success. Um, main change in the, um, uh, in the last decade was the sale of our journals to Taylor and Francis. Um, and we spent the money on launching our own online platform called Woodhead Publishing Online, which we uh, launched in um, 2010, uh, which has been a fantastic success. Well, that's now being merged into Elsevier, and the, the content will go on to Science Direct. And then, I suppose, beginning to think about retirement about four years ago, did nothing about it, um, and then all of a sudden, sign of the economy picking up perhaps, we've got a few knocks on the door um, around about the turn of this year and Elsevier uh, knocked the loudest. And um, so uh, we ended up doing a deal. And, uh, and that's it. So um, what I'd like to do um, now, if I may, how am I doing for time? We've probably got three minutes. Three minutes, yeah. oh wow, this you is gonna, this is yeah, gonna uh, be, uh, well, <laughs> we'll Rebecca, can I uh, ask you to come up, grasp this green marker. Uh, let's pull this out a bit here. We've got some, what I've, I've transferred some of those points onto these charts here to indicate the, really the economic and the technological changes that have taken place. There are no technological changes on here at the moment, just a few economic ones. Um, so this is my misspent youth. Um, starting with Macmillan here, moving on to Gower Press here. What I'd like you guys to do is to come up with some suggestions as to what were the technological changes that took place in this decade, 1960s. And Rebecca's going to write them on. I've got a few here. I'll, I'll, kick, I'll kick, kick, kick it off with a photocopier. Are we guessing just, the yeah, yeah, just write photocopier anyway. Around about here, mid-60s, it really took off. They had a fundamental change. Um, on the publishing environment. Any others? Internet? internet? No, a bit, bit too soon for the internet. Colour printing? Hmm? Colour printing? printing, yes, good one. <laughs> yep. Anywhere? Yeah, anywhere, round, round about here, took off round about here. There's a big decline in uh, hot metal typesetting, um, letterpress printing, development of litho, development of colour printing, Hamblin cookbooks and all the rest of it. So yeah, big one. Anything else? How about um, electric typewriters? IBM Golf Ball. Sea change, because you could actually swap your fonts around. Swap one golf ball for another one. Um, anything else? Yes? Is it very technological? You could say Bigger market, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would say that was a technological change. That's what uh, yeah, yeah. We want to focus mainly on all these technical changes that have taken place. You've got two minutes now. Two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right, two minutes to five decades. Uh, well, let's write down um, punch cards and early computers. Right. Let's move over. Seventies. Lo and behold, another recession. Yeah. <laughs> what happened in the in the uh, in this decade? Fax machines. Fax machines. Yes, great one. Anything else? Uh, 
The pocket calculator. <laughs> and, of course, electric typewriters became word processors. Right, moving over. Oh, well, we have another recession. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened in the 80s? Mobile phones. Mobile phones? Cell phones. Yeah, 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 yeah. Starting. Um, fax. Fax, machines. fax machines, yes, fax machines uh, got even bigger. Mm, not quite. Mm? <laughs> yeah, maybe end eighties, maybe more early nineties, perhaps. Yeah, I'd say um, sling in here things like. Uh, much faster production times because of the changes in, in technology. Um, and also the good old famous Amstrad PC, um, which which uh, we all started to use. Right, I'll be quick on these last... You need last to move your decades. <laughs> <laughs> right, then we have 90s. Well, clearly. Let's just I'll drop these down. You can fill in the nails. Internet. Um, Amazon, 95, Google, digitization of journals, PDFs, online platforms, um, collapse of the netbook agreement, uh, decline of independence, and all the rest of it. So we've had to cope with all these, you know, throughout this time. Thank you, Rebecca. And, and then we've got aggregators open access, another recession of course, e-books, Onyx, metadata, POD, you know all about this lot, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's just endless, that's, that's what I'm trying to say is that we had to cope with these changes, it's nothing new, uh, it's just non-stop and no doubt we'll be uh, looking ahead um, into uh, my big takeaway from Elsevier is deep verticals. Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so I think that's yeah. it. Well, thank you very we, much, Martin. I think we can stop there. Um, I think rather than take reference. questions now, I'll ask Ian if you could speak now. Thank you yeah, very much. Quickly. Right, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming on a, a brisk Saturday. Um, I think one of the things that unites us all is we've all had varied careers which look as if they were terribly well planned. And of course, one of the factors that I'd like to stress is luck and seizing opportunities when you can. I, in the summer of 1976, I was a lowly tutor in geography at the University of Birmingham, finishing off writing a PhD. And on Friday afternoon, I looked in the back pages of what was then Times Higher Education Supplement. There's a little ad that said, Longman want a geography publisher and the salary was £500 more than I was earning at the time, and my wife had just got pregnant, so we decided we had to do something about our finances. So I applied. Now, this is where luck comes in, because there were two people on the shortlist. It was me, and it was a lady called Jane Clayton, who had been the geography editor at Oxford University Press. And Longman's then were in Harlow, in Essex, lovely place. And uh, I went by train from Birmingham, and Jane went by car from Oxford, and she surely would have got the job had her car not broken down. Uh, so I then went to Longman, became the geography editor, ultimately became the science editor, working with people like Richard Dawkins, I could tell you stories. Um, and one of the key things I'm always asked if you're an academic publisher, should you publish in the field that you know and care about? I would say not. I, I think it's useful to have a knowledge, but always remember as an academic publisher, you are the publishing expert and you deal with academics and you get their respect and it helps if you know a thing or two about the field. You can always blag it if you don't. Uh, but you can, you really need to uh, be recognised and respected for your publishing knowledge. And that hasn't really changed. We, we've dealt with an enormous amount of change. When I went to Longman, my best-selling titles had been commissioned in the 1930s. And I say to Martin when we were coming over, I actually 
had on my list a title that had been published in 1886. Um, it had been through 20 editions, but it was essentially a Victorian book that was being published in the 1970s. Unbelievable. Um, so always, you know, uh, the best list I ever published was veterinary medicine. Now, vets are lovely to deal with. You, you go and meet them in muddy fields with their arms buried up the cow's backside. <laughs> uh, so so it, 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 there's always something to talk about. But I didn't know anything about veterinary medicine, but I, they wanted a publishing person, and, and uh, that, that, that's something I've always taken away. I left Longman in 1985 um, to go to Macmillan to run Macmillan reference books, which was great fun. Uh, we published a book of their first CD-ROMs. Does anyone know, remember what CD-ROMs were like? Uh, and we... We have the record, I think, for the lowest quantity of any publication ever sold. We, with that CD-ROM cost £500,000, and we sold three copies. <laughs> um, but what we did produce was the Palgrave Encyclopedia of Economics, which has been a great success, and it's where the name Palgrave comes from, I'm delighted to say. So I was at Macmillan, and then, as happens, all networks are always very important, always, always cultivating networks. I had a great friend called Mark Cohen, who ran... Um, Hutchinson at that point, Hutchinson Education. Um, and Mark and I used to go and have lunch together, and he said, there's a woman called Frances Pinter who's looking for someone to rejuvenate, a small society publisher. He said, I've arranged for you to go and have a word with her. So I went and off I went, and Frances said, well, we, we can't pay you very much, but we'd like someone to come and be editorial director here. So I thought, well, that sounds quite interesting. So I did two things at, at Pinter. One, I took a, a, a rather narrow list based in international relations and politics and turned into something broader. But Francis also gave me the opportunity to set up my own imprint, which is called Belhaven Press, which in 1986-87, environment was just becoming the big issue. And I knew a lot of people who were bursting to write about things like climatic change, which wasn't very known about at that stage, and, and so on. So we, we did that well. On, and again, it also shows network and luck. Uh, I'd gone to the University of Leicester to meet some authors, and as we were walking across Leicester University's campus to lunch, I was quite literally bumped into the Deputy Vice-Chancellor and was introduced to him, a chap called Jerry Bamba. He said, oh, you're a publisher, aren't you? And I said, yes. He said, oh, we've got this rotten university press. We sell £200,000 worth of books a year and we lose a quarter of a million pounds. Would you like to buy it? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, how much do you want for it? He said, make me an offer. <laughs> so I offered £35,000. Uh, which was steel of the decade. Um, very distinguished list. Lots of books in urban history and uh, politics and history and German and all sorts. And we turned it a quarter million pound loss into a profit of over a million pounds by doing one very simple thing. Always remember the publishing parameter. We increased prices. They never ever increased prices. And they were selling lovely books at three ninety nine when we could get £35 for it. It's not rocket science. Um, so anyway, uh, Belhim grew and grew and grew and became quite famous, and along came Wiley, <laughs> and said to our... Now, one of the things you've got to remember when you're in a small business is there are always, uh, Martin mentioned, the investors. We had took investment from a company called 3i, uh, who wanted their money back. Uh, people who invest in publishing houses who are not publishers always want their money back. But they do. So we, uh, 3i, were made an offer by Wiley, which I'm still contractually bound not to tell you how much it was. <laughs> so how much was it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was a lot of money. Sure. More money than I'd ever seen. <laughs> so off I went to Wiley um, to uh, become head of their then London office, where they were largely based in Chichester, as we saw Blackwell, and had great fun in a, an office in the garment district which would make it very easy to get secretaries because one of the tricks about London Garment District is that the garment houses put dr excess dresses out on the pavement at 4.30. So if you've got a, an assistant who wants to be, who's a bit of a fashionista but can't afford to buy fashion clothes on publishing salaries, which no one can, uh, working for a, a company based in East Castle Street was very useful. Um, and then... Uh, the lease on that office, it shows how things happened. The lease on the office ran out, and Wiley said, do you want to come to Chichester? And I said, yeah, pretty place, but no. Um, so I then got a job, uh, which was great fun, but 
as being publishing director of what was then called Her Majesty's Stationery Office, which was the government publisher. So I was responsible for everything from the Queen's Speech and Act of Parliament, statutory instruments, to wonderful, wonderful trade books. We had a, chi we had a children's list. Uh, we had cookery books. Uh, one of our, my other great publishing successes was something called Eat Scotland Healthy, <laughs> which uh, was an attempt to actually change the Scottish diet. We sold four copies of that. <laughs> uh, so, and then again, always keep your eye on things that are happening round the corner. It was the last, remember John Major? The last echo of the John Major government, the station office was privatised. And privatised very quickly. And we were suddenly, although it had been an arm's length trading fund, it was suddenly turned into being a commercial. Uh, had to become a commercial publisher. So we started doing new things. We got rid of quite a lot of things. We couldn't get rid of the core business, which was government publishing, um, Hansard and those sort of things. But we did get rid of the children's list, uh, one or two other things. So how did, I, uh, how did I plan my career? Well, it was looking at opportunities. Think laterally, if you can. Uh, always think, where, is that, where might that lead? But seize opportunities when come, they come up. You never know where they're going to be. In my career, I could, I, you never lose any sleep over the jobs that you were offered but didn't take. Keep your network fresh. Uh, I always say to my students that uh, for the next 40 years, the people in this room are the people you will hire, fire. Always be nice to people going up because you never know when you're going to meet them coming down. And it's really quite important that publishing is a people business. It's about networks. And my career, I think all of our careers, are about the people we've met and the people we've worked with. And I can certainly think of three or four jobs that have come my way because, like Mark Cohen, uh, you know, he said, I thought you might like to meet this person. Uh, well, uh, three minutes? Well, three minutes. I'm sure I can cover the rest of that. <laughs> um, most people here are either in academic publishing or would like to be in academic publishing. Uh, we're in an era of unprecedented change. There are no books now in a list that were published 50 years ago. Or perhaps there are. You know, it's, uh, I, one of the titles I used to publish was Whittinger's Almanac. Uh, we bought it from the Whittinger family when I was at the station office. And I had this bright idea to change it. There's all this stuff in Whittinger's Almanac about how to address an archbishop, uh, whether a, a princess of the blood royal takes precedence over a prince of the Roman Catholic Church. So I said to the editor, heard the scream from here to the north of Scotland. We had hundreds of letters from people saying, why have you left it? In? I only buy Whittinger's Almanac because I want to know how to address it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so be careful about change. It's not necessarily... We, we, we did make Whittinger's digital. Uh, Bloomsbury, who now own it, are doing all sorts of interesting things. But sometimes change isn't necessarily the right thing to do. And always remember that the change don't become drunk with the technology. It's very easy to think that XML is the really important thing. Uh, but XML will be superseded. There'll be something else come along. Don't get bogged down by being the expert. We all mentioned the, the Sinclair XL, all the things um, that we, technology we used to use that they're redundant in our museum pieces. Publishing is about content and making sure that you create the best content and make sure that content goes to the people who want that content. And that hasn't changed. The form of delivery has, and the way of actually that content being used, certainly within universities and in education, um, I'm not quite sure how uh, MOOCs are going to affect us. No one's mentioned that word yet today, but <laughs> it's going to be a big part of your life. Uh, that's an enormous publishing opportunity, it seems to me. Uh, but MOOCs could disappear. You know, it's a very, it's a buzzword at the moment, but it could well become something new. Okay, the other things I was asked to do was to tell you a little bit about adventure we're having. UCL Press is... One minute. One minute. <laughs> 30 seconds of UCL Press and then 30 seconds of management change. UCL Press is, was set up in the mid-1990s as a conventional university press publishing books, a few journals. And it was a joint venture between uh, two publishers who were refugees from a company, very big, then very big academic publisher called Alan and Unwin, who are uh, now deep in the bowels of HarperCollins. 
but uh, and the university itself. And it did very well for a bit, but then a recession hit, and it was sold to Taylor & Francis, who then sold it to another company, and then Taylor & Francis bought the company they sold it to, so it then went back to Taylor & Francis. About a year ago, I was having a conversation with one of the original partners at UCL Press, and I said, who owns the name? He looked at me and said, you do. What? How interesting. <laughs> so we, have, we were about to reinvent UCL Press as a digital-only publisher for arts and humanities, because it's very clear with arts and humanities authors that conventional journal publishing isn't really their bag. They want a place to publish monographs. And I, I did some work with the British Academy on how the British Academy could create a publishing platform for uh, the authors who are arts and humanities. Uh, and we think UCL Press is going to be quite an exciting uh, opportunity to actually create a digital only press for the people who want to publish philosophers, historians, uh, archaeologists, linguists, and so on. So watch the space. 30 seconds, I guess. 20. Uh, so managing change uh, was, was the thing I was asked in. How do you manage change? You keep your head. Don't panic. It, it's the great Douglas Adams approach to, uh, uh, to, to, to business. Change will always be there. We do need to take it on board. But always remember that other people are, are taking it on board as well. You need to be aware of technology. You need to understand what technology delivers, but don't be a slave. And particularly, don't become <laughs> the person. I always used to say to students, never ever, this will date it, never ever be the person in the office who knows Quark Express, because you will be stuck with Quark Express for <laughs> the rest of your life. Listen. Publishers only create success by listening. Understand your market. Know who your authors are. Know who your buyers are. The market is incredibly, we used to rely on libraries. Libraries are now a very different market from the way they once were. We are selling more and more to individual students and scholars. And bite-sized bits of content are the way ahead. Travel. Uh, you never, ever found a good book sitting in the office and waiting for it to come over the transom. Go to conferences. Go to academic gatherings. Listen to people at those gatherings, and, and, and they won't have to tell you. Meet people. It's still about content. It's all about content. And never, ever be diverted from that. If you get the content right, you will find the appropriate means of delivery to get to the market. So that's a quick Thank you very much, Ian. Rush yeah. round. <laughs> And no, we do. I wanted to allow some time for questions, so we thankfully we, we, we've made it to this question time part of the. Yes. Rebecca, is it Rebecca? It yeah. Is, yeah. yeah. I was wondering, Martin, whether now that you're retired, you might return to botany, maybe to, you know, crystallography. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. Yeah. Um, you know the, uh, the, the, the priority is to, um, to give my. Um, my missus a good holiday. She's um, put up with me running a business for 47, no, sorry, 42 years. Um, and it's quite tough, you know, when you've got uh, young kids and expanding household and so on. So that's the absolute priority. Um, and when, when all that's done and dusted, which will take us up to Easter, I might then go back to Botany. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another question, please. I mean, if you were starting a business now, Martin, would you follow the UCL route of digital only? Yes, I think, uh, well, I'd, it depends how you define digital. Um, you know, POD is digital. Mm. Um, and POD is absolutely brilliant. You know, the, 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 the physical book is still, you know, the, the strongest part of Woodhead Publishing's business. It was a, still a huge chunk of Elsevier's business. And I think we shouldn't get sort of too sort of hung up on on digitization in terms of certain in terms of ebooks because the physical book still has a huge market um, to deliver e content proper e content you know you've got to have fantastic broadband infrastructure and yeah we're used to well mm. we think we've got it up to a point but it's, it's still got you know, a long way to go in this country in the states it's strong it's strong in other developed markets, but a lot of our markets are 
new markets, new 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 upcoming markets, and you know, India, for example, enormous potential still to be had there. Their broadband infrastructure is is almost non-existent. But what 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 is there is always breaking down. Great mobile coverage, and maybe if mobile speeds, you know, get faster and faster, that might help solve problem partially. So there are an awful lot of places around the world. If you're particularly, if you've got a product which can be exported, and a lot of academic professional content clearly can be, then you know, don't overlook the strength of the uh, of that physical market. The, the great freedom of, of digital. I agree with Martin that print on demand is probably the way forward for a large part of what yeah. we're going to do for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Is that you're liberated from stock. More publishing businesses have gone bust by having too many stock. Uh, if you read my book, you'll see the sad tale of Dorian Kindersley and, and Star Wars, uh, which is now commemorated by a large hill in uh, New England, which is where 60 million books are buried, something, something like that. Uh, if you publish digitally, you don't have warehouses for the dead trees. You, and what's more, you build a key relationship with your customer because your customer asks you what you know what he or she wants. Yeah. So instead of having three thousand copies of a book in a warehouse or odd copies of a journal, I think one of the biggest changes is I know Sarah's beautiful to be really interesting. I think the journal as the journal is extremely limited, time limited model. I think actually putting random articles in print between covers and calling it the British Journal of Advance, whatever, is a model that is passed. I think what the article of commerce is going to become the article, or indeed the variations of the article, the whole freedom you have with pre-prints and post-prints, grey prints and so on, is the way forward. Although it's very interesting, um, I don't know if you saw an article I wrote in the Times Higher about six months ago now, on the fake fraudulent journal publishers who are rapidly appearing all over the world, and who are going to academics and saying, "We want to make you the, you know, the the, the editor in chief of the, the great journal, whatever it is." Um, and oh, by the way, it'll cost you a few a few pounds to, to pay for this. It's actually quite a danger for reputable publishers, uh, and we've got to keep our nerve as reputable publishers because what we do is quality. We yeah. still have the peer review process. We still make sure that the, ma the material we publish is as best it can possibly be. There are people out there who want to steal our lunch. Um, I don't think they're agile enough or clever enough to actually do it, but if you get an email from, say, we mentioned names in here, so we're all friends, Meta Press, for instance, um, look at it very, very carefully. Um, they got very cross with me when I wrote, wrote that article, but quite rightly. Yeah. So do you want to follow up on? Well, I think that's right. There, yeah. is, a t there is a tension and... Um, we work for a lot of academic organisations, so societies, and they obviously building up their brands. So there is a kind of tension between what they, uh, what the authors want, which is actually to publish in some of these known brands, but equally the fact that the the article needs to be developed, built upon, and connected in different ways because it's got its own life impact, etc. Yeah. So I think there's a big tension there, but I, I think, I mean, in a way, the, the reason we're in this position is because publishers didn't innovate fast enough, and um, lots of third parties came in and created solutions to problems, and we said, oh, gosh, where did that all come from? Altmetrics, you know, gosh, mm. how surprising yeah. that people wanted to know about social media around their article, you know. Yeah. But yes, they do, and, and publishers weren't weren't kind of yeah. ready, pro um, progressing fast enough. So I think the cost of the technology and the fact that we've had to transition all that print and manage all those warehouses has yeah. kind of caused us to 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 slow down when we needed to speed up so I think it's just we're, we're now realizing we've got to catch up and that's that's our job to kind of innovate fast enough that we're not being disrupted we are doing our own disruption and you can see Macmillan and people are doing yeah. that <laughs> by building up their kind of their, their labs to kind of do their own disruption within the uh, uh, kind of established yeah. company Quick question. You, you wanted to ask a question? Um, yeah. yeah, if I have time. Yeah. Um, there, I was just wondering about without, with everything going you know, digital, but also without getting hung up on the technology, like you were saying, is there any push to sort of enhance that, um, I don't know, add in other thing, things other than the words, you know, like 
bring in interactive quizzes to academic publishing or yeah. that kind of mm. thing. Yeah. Is there a big push towards so that? Or you want to well, it's interesting because this company, Kudos, who mm. started up, that's exactly what they want to do is innovate around the article. So they're looking at um, having links to the, uh, to the author's kind of, whether it might be YouTube or um, maybe video, PowerPoints, all the kinds of things that they have attached to that article. And the idea is that you will create more impact and drive more usage of your article because you're attaching those other things to it. Mm. Equally, data would be another example of that where there's studies showing if you attach data to your article, you get you get more impact of your article, more readership. So I think there's definitely a, a, a trend to kind of to do that, probably at the, at the, at the submission point. Do we have to stop? We do, yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> could you all join me in thanking our three speakers for... <laughs>